news to mine. Your word sanctifies us. Lord, we thank you, O Lord, that we live by your word, by every word that comes from your mouth. And we praise you, O Lord, that you have given us the capacity to not only hear your word or read your word, but to remember your word, to, to hide it in our hearts. We praise you for how that's been modeled this morning by our sister Mara and, and by Rohit, Lord. And we pray that more and more we would be committed to your word and, and that we would hold fast to it. As we come to Philippians 2 this morning, assure us by your word. Give us confidence of our salvation and grant us grace to grow in Christ as we give attention to what you have said. Bless your word in the preaching. Bless your word in the hearing. Bless your word in the doing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, raise your hands if you, if you need a Bible this morning. We've got folks who are passing out uh, loaners and gifts. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we want this to be our gift to you. So please take it with you, write your name in it, uh, read it at night, read it in the morning, uh, come back with it and, and study it together with us. Uh, we would like nothing more than for you to have the, the treasure that we have, which is God's Word. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. As you turn there, I want to tell you about somebody I, I have really respected and loved for a long time. Her name is Dr. Carla F.C. Holloway. She taught literature at North Carolina State University, uh, where Christy and I were students back in the day. She's easily one of my favorite professors. Uh, she, she had this sparkling personality, this wide smile. She smiled with her whole face and her eyes. And, and she was probably the only professor I knew who giggled. I mean, she just enjoyed teaching. She enjoyed literature. And you could hear her giggling and hear her laughing often. And she encouraged us. Uh, even though Chris and I were undergraduate students at the time, she welcomed us in her graduate uh, classes in African-American literature. She challenged us just as if we were her graduate students. Uh, and as much as anyone, it's Dr. Holloway who... who taught me to write, or at least tried. I, I turn in these papers full of undergraduate certainty. Sentences clunky with big words and awkward phrases. And Dr. Holloway take a red pen to it. I mean, she would tear it up. It was Christmas every week when I got the papers back, man. She was a kind of professor who believed you could think and think well. And she said, as as sure as you can think and think well, you might as well write well. Express your thoughts clearly. And the lesson she taught me over and over was this. I can still see it written on those papers. Three words. Show, don't tell. Show, don't tell. Good writers show their readers their meaning. They paint a picture for you. The words become windows allowing you to look out on whole new worlds of, of thought and experience. Their arguments become dramas that, that sweep you up in the, in the feeling and the, and the action of the, of the text. Dr. Calloway used to always tell me, Thabiti, don't just state things. Show me. Illustrate it. Prove it. And after all these years, I remember that lesson. 
I, I don't always do it in my writing, but I do remember the lesson. Dr. Holloway is a professing Christian. She grew up in a little AME church up in Michigan. And this morning, I imagine that that lesson, show, don't tell, that style of hers, might have had its beginning in that little church. Because Christianity is not something you just state. Christianity is something that you also must show. We must live in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 27. And it's in living like a Christian that we experience one of the greatest blessings of being a Christian, the assurance of our salvation. Our statement of faith is the London Baptist Confession of Faith written in 1689. And in chapter 18, uh, there are four paragraphs that defines what the Bible teaches about assurance, about being sure that you're saved. Here's a section from paragraph one. Such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. We believe that we can be sure that we are Christians, that we are saved, that Christ has loved us and purchased us, and we believe that out of that assurance springs Christian joy. Now our statement of faith goes on to say that there are some people who are genuinely Christians but who lack this assurance. And there are other Christians who may find their assurance shaken by various things in this life. Here's the common experience those two groups of genuine Christians have. The the absence of assurance is a distressing thing. It's a troublesome thing. Horatius Bonnard, that great hymn writer, put it this way, describing both the absence of assurance and the, the, the presence of it. He says, uncertainty as to our relationship with God is one of the most enfeebling and dispiriting of things. It makes a man heartless. It takes the pith out of him. He cannot fight. He cannot run. He is easily dismayed and and gives way. That's the lack of assurance. He can do nothing for God. But when we know that we are of God, we are vigorous, brave, invincible. There is no more quickening truth than this of assurance. Nothing makes us more alive and joyful in God than the certainty that we have been saved through Christ. And so many Christians have observed throughout the history of the church that it is the duty of all Christians to seek full confidence that they are saved for their joy in Christ. And there's a relationship here we want to see in the text between showing and knowing. might put the main point of the sermon this way. When we show ourselves to be Christians, then we know ourselves to be Christians. When we show ourselves to be Christians, then we know ourselves to be Christians. 
As we go through Philippians chapter 2, 18, 12 to 18 this morning, I, I want us to think about this idea of assurance in three points. Assurance requires us to prove our salvation to ourselves, number one, it's in verses 12 and 13. To prove our salvation to the world, verses 14 to 16. And to prove our salvation to the church, verses 17 to 18. We want to show and prove to ourselves, to the world, and to the church. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul begins his argument here in verse 12 with the word therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you're supposed to ask the question what? What's it there for? Paul is still in this section of, of exhortation, of encouragement to the Philippians, and he's in a section where he's been exhorting them to gospel unity. So if you look back in chapter 1, verse 12, he says there, uh, only walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he describes what that is in terms of standing firm with one mind, striving together uh, with one spirit, defending the gospel. And then he comes down to chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, so if there is any uh, encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being, again, of like mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then around verse 5 or 6, he begins to sort of give them the model for this one mindedness for this same love, for this unity in the church, and that model is Jesus Christ himself. Just have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. And then we have this Christ hymn, this wonderful song describing our Lord's deity, incarnation, humiliation, and glorification. Who being in the form of God, his deity, did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's his incarnation. And being found in the likeness of men, humbled himself by becoming obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. That's his humiliation on the cross. And then Paul says this, therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and given him a name and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's his exaltation. Paul has been rehearsing the gospel itself, that the Son of God has come into the world. He's taken upon himself human flesh. He has died on the cross for our sins, taking taking our place for the death and the punishment that we deserve. And God has raised him from the grave three days later and indeed raised him into heaven and exalted him to the right hand of God the Father where he sits and rules now until he comes again to gather his people. And the gospel says this, all who put their faith in this Jesus to be their righteousness before God and to take away their sins before God who trust him as their savior, shall be saved. That's the promise of the gospel. If you believe in Christ as your personal Lord and savior, you shall be saved. Write it down. No ifs, ands, and buts. No fine print. No qualifying statements. God has made this promise to the world, and all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So when we come to our text this morning and Paul says, therefore, he's saying, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you have believed, and which we pray everyone this morning would believe, we get the command of verse 12. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. That's what the Philippians are to do. Each one of them had to focus on their own standing with Jesus. Notice there he says, work out your own salvation. A lot of Christians are so busy questioning other people's salvation, they don't stop to think about their own. Work out here means to demonstrate the the genuineness of your faith. Prove to yourself that you are saved. Show, don't tell. Now the Bible calls us to a certain kind of obedience here. Working out our faith is is parallel with that phrase. He says um, that you have always obeyed. So now, work out your faith. So it's the, it's the same idea right there, that obedience is the way in which we demonstrate our faith in Christ. And notice how we're to obey. We're to obey consistently. As you have always obeyed, so now. Without a pattern of obedience to God, we cannot have a legitimate sense of assurance that we are saved. Oh, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of people who are falsely assured. They believe they're Christians despite all the evidence, the plentiful evidence. And they keep telling themselves that they are Christians, though they do not live for Christ and do not even hold to the gospel faithfully. But legitimate assurance comes along with earnest obedience to God. Obedience is the beautiful flower that grows from the seed of saving faith. And so we are to obey, not perfectly, because that's beyond us but consistently. Notice, secondly, we are to obey God sincerely. That's what I take from that phrase, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. We, we know that obedience is genuine when we do what we are told when ain't nobody looking. If we only obey when people are around, then we're merely compliant, not obedient from the heart. I was a little boy during the summers. I was a latchkey kid, 
You could do that in small town North Carolina back in the day. I didn't leave nobody alone nowadays. But I was a latchkey kid, and my mom would, would go to work, and she would say, now, boy, when I get home, I want the yard mowed, and I want the dishes washed. I want all your chores done. And, you know, through one eye, half sleep, I'd be like, yes, ma'am. And she'd go off to work. Now, she would have told me that about 6.30 when she went off to work. And she gets home about 5.30. What time do you think I did my chores? That's exactly right. About 5.15. I'm mowing the yard, washing this. I'm trying to do it all at one time, right? I was a compliant child, not really an obedient child. And, and our obedience to God the Father can be a lot like that, can it? If we feel like he's watching, we're on our P's and Q's. If we feel like we're sneaking away from something, then we let things get loose, don't we? That's not the kind of obedience here. That It's not the kind of obedience that leads to a, a full assurance in Christ. We want to obey sincerely from the heart. And number three here, we want to obey God respectfully. That's, that's what we get from that, that phrase, in fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. We are to take this seriously. We don't trifle with God. We fear him or reverence him, respect him deeply. We, we don't take our salvation for granted. Instead, we, we tremble before God. In other words, we have to pursue the assurance of our salvation with the highest degree of soberness and seriousness before God. Is how Charles Spurgeon put it. If any man is not sure that he is in Christ, he ought not to be easy one moment until he is sure. Dear friend, without the fullest confidence as to your saved condition, you have no right to be at ease, and I pray you may never be so. This is a matter too important to be left undecided. Is that how you approach this issue of assurance? A good friend named Sean. Sean's crazy. But he was a Christian long before I was. And he was a, a crazy radical Christian too. And he prayed for me while I was a Muslim that I would be saved. And I remember one day when he told me what he was praying, he says, Lord, don't let that rascal rest till you save him. And that's what Spurgeon's getting at here. Christian, don't let yourself rest until you feel the full confidence of your salvation through faith in Christ. Now, let me pause here because I think there are some mistakes that people can make in this whole conversation about assurance and, and how we gain it. And we need to identify those mistakes so that we think correctly and act correctly in the pursuit of confidence in our salvation. Number one, we can give in to insecurity and fear about this topic. The thought that we might not be saved can be so frightening to some Christians that they tell us we ought never think about it. Taboo becomes this issue of assurance. And then they live a life of quiet, private torture. But this is not a topic that we should approach with that kind of fear. We should approach it with confidence, looking for confirming evidence of our salvation. That's Paul's approach in this letter. Notice what he does. First of all, Paul is tender as he brings up the subject. See there at the beginning of verse 12? Therefore, my beloved, my dear ones. Paul speaks like a father with children, not like a detective with criminals. 
Secondly, notice, Paul starts him off not with the question of their salvation, but with the evidence of their salvation, as you have always obeyed. He doesn't say, look at all your imperfections. He doesn't start with a list of past sins. He begins with the record of their obedience because he wants them to build their assurance on the evidence of God's grace in their life. And Paul often does this in his letters. If he wants a church like the Thessalonians to grow in love, he says, listen, I have no need to write to you about your love for one another. You already love each other. Do so more and more as the day approaches. He affirms what he wishes to encourage. And this is what he's doing here. He's affirming that he sees evidence of God's grace in their life through their pattern of obedience. And now he's exhorting them to more obedience. So overall, the Christians should consider assurance with hope rather than trepidation or fear. We don't have to be afraid to talk about this. In fact, talking about it will root us more deeply in Christ. There's a second thing, a second mistake we want to avoid. We can, we can think that in order to be assured, we need some new, radical, great, extravagant act of obedience. But notice how Paul exhorts them. He says, so now, work out your own salvation. And that's parallel, as we said before, as you have already obeyed. Sometimes the person struggling to be sure of their salvation begins to think that there's another level of Christianity. They're on some small entry level, level one, and somehow they need to level up and beat a couple of bosses, you know, keep leveling up. Some of y'all gamers know what I'm talking about. They think they have to do extraordinary things to be confident before God. In, in Roman Catholicism, there's this doctrine of supererogation. It's a harder word to pronounce. Super, E-R-O-G-A-T-I-O-N. This idea that you can do more for God than duty requires. So they would say something like in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says you're free to marry or not marry. But if you choose not to marry, that's a, that's a work of sort of extra. That's an extra work. That's above and beyond the call of duty. And in Roman Catholicism, those works supposedly create what they call a treasure of merit, a treasure of, of righteousness. And then the church claims for itself the ability to dispense grace from that treasury to the persons that they think should have that grace through penance and so on and so forth. That's not what the Bible teaches. Amen. Anywhere in the Bible, right? Amen. But, you know, when I think about that doctrine, I think that when it comes to assurance, there are a lot of Christians who are not Roman Catholics who think much that way. They believe that they do extra good works. There's then merit built up so that they can then be sure that they're saved. But that's not how the gospel works. As we see in the first part of verse 12, working out our salvation is simply continuing the obedience we've already begun when we turned in repentance and faith to follow Christ as Lord. It's a steady obedience in the same direction. It's continuing to grow in our reception of God's word and our practice of his word. You don't have to be a super Christian to be a sure Christian. You simply need to trust Christ and follow him. And that's the third mistake that we make. We can think that we must earn our salvation. Obedience does not accomplish our salvation. 
By works of the law, the Bible says, no one will be justified. No one will be saved. We do not earn our salvation. We do not earn God's forgiveness. Salvation is a free gift of God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So obedience now is not the root of salvation. It's the fruit of salvation. It's not what gives rise to the plant. It's what the plant flowers in. And so we want this fruit. And when we see the fruit, Jesus saying you can tell a tree by the fruit it bears, we are then confident in the root, right? That the root is the saving work of Christ. A fourth mistake. We can depend that all of this, we can think that all of this depends on our strength. We do not gain assurance by training harder. We are talking about grace, not grit. The truly remarkable thing is that even in our obedience, that our obedience does not fundamentally come from us. What is verse 13 again? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, y'all, y'all should be shouting right now. <laughs> Christian, God is at work in you, not just for you, not just through you, but God is at work in you. Uh, Ephesians says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who believe. Now, notice what God is at work in us to do. He's at work in us to do two things, to will his, his, his good pleasure and to work his good pleasure. That means both the desire to obey God and the ability to obey God comes from God himself. Think about your conversion. Before you became a Christian, you had no desire to obey God. You weren't even thinking about trying to have a desire to obey God. And before you were a Christian, not only did you not have the desire, but you you didn't have the strength to either. But then something happened. You heard the gospel and you believed in Jesus and a new power came into your life. A new presence came into your life, and with that presence, the presence of Christ, came a new desire. You then began to will things that you didn't used to will. You began to desire things that you didn't used to desire. And, and sometimes it was, it was amazing to you and people who knew you. What? That rascal going to church? I remember when... And you find yourself doing things that are pleasing to God, obeying things that you find in God's word. And that is evidence, beloved, that God is at work in you. That in fact, God is in you by his spirit. And we're talking about assurance. We're not talking about sort of some program to do things in our own strength to make us feel confident. No, we're talking ultimately about trusting in the work of God himself. You remember what Paul says in in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6? He says, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You know the one person you don't have to prove that you're sure of your salvation to? It's God. Because he saved you and he is going to finish what he started. So prove to yourself that you're saved by trusting God. And in his strength, obeying God. 
if we want to be sure, we have to prove it to ourselves that Christ is our Lord and that we live for him. But number two, if we want to be sure, we want to prove our salvation to the world. That's what we see in verses 14 to 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Verse 14 gives us our second command in these couple of paragraphs here. You see it there, do all things, again, obey, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Well, you may have a translation that says questioning or complaining. Do everything without grumbling and complaining. My friend Vody Balkan would say, if you can't say amen, say ouch. (laughs) I know my heart can be so quick to complain and to grumble. Even at being called to do good things. I flew to Greensboro on Monday to speak at a conference. It was sort of there and back. I'm coming back before I get on the plane to Greensboro. I'll get a text. Family member sends me a text, says, Hey, when you land at uh, DCA, do you mind stopping at Chick fil A and uh, picking up our order and bringing it home when you come? Now, when I go somewhere for a conference, as my wife can tell you, what I wish to do on return is go immediately home, take a nap, play Xbox, but just go home, right? Now, I know that my heart is sinful because I get this text to stop and pick up this Chick-fil-A, and I'm like, I don't want to stop at Chick-fil-A. Now, that ain't a sentence you ever hear from me. I don't want to stop at Chick-fil-A. I always want to stop at Chick-fil-A. You know what I mean? But I'm like, in my heart, I'm like, I don't want to stop at Chick-fil-A. I got to literally walk right past the joint, right? I I think, man, the milkshake going to melt and, you know, the fries going to be cold. You know, I'm just rehearsing. My heart's just grumbling and complaining for nothing, right? I wonder if you notice that in your heart. This tendency, even with good things that we ought to do, to murmur, grumble, to complain, to protest. If we real clever... That's why I like the translation that says questioning. We ask a question, don't we? You know, we hide all of that sin behind. Well, you know, do you really want Chick-fil-A? <laughs> <laughs> the milkshake might melt, you know. You do, you do know that, right? You know? And I wonder if you notice something. I noticed this in my own heart. The Lord's been spanking me all week long, so it's your turn. I, I, I noticed in my own heart. I will end up spending more energy grumbling and complaining than it would have taken me to do the task to begin with. Can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> so the instruction here is to do all things. All things. The Greek word for all there means all. <laughs> do all things. <laughs> Without grumbling or complaining, without questioning or murmuring, without disputing. You see, grumbling and murmuring and questioning and disputing, they reveal a grudging unwillingness to accept God's rule in our lives. 
to accept God's dealings in our lives. Our lives are one way, or, or God commands us to do one thing, and we harden ourselves because we want it a different way, or we want to do a different thing, or to have a different thing. Grumbling and complaining ultimately is begrudging God. We have these wonderful examples throughout the Scripture. Think of Israel. They're grumbling and complaining. We read from Exodus 16 in the call to worship. I want you to turn with me now to to Numbers chapter 14 to see another example because it's important that we recognize that this sin in our culture is respectable or tolerated. Was the last time somebody has really challenged you that your grumbling and complaining is sinful? It's respected and tolerated, but it's really before God. It really is serious, even heinous. So look with me in Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Uh, The spies have gone into the promised land, Caleb and Joshua and 10 others. The 10 others come back talking about, man, the people are big. They're giants. We can't beat them. And Joshua and Caleb are the only ones who come back having seen with eyes of faith. They said, man, the grapes are, are so big. And yeah, the people are big, but our God is bigger. What I want us to see is how Israel responds to that report. Numbers 14, beginning in verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Like, fool, you were a slave, making bricks without straw. And they said to one another, let let us choose a leader and, and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said, stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared, the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. Israel thought their grumbling was a better plan than obedience to God. They thought their grumbling was against Moses and Joshua. At least that was their excuse, right? Why have you brought us out? But they know that God has been leading them. Joshua saw that their grumbling was 
rebellion against God. See there in verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. And that's striking. But God saw their grumbling not merely as rebellion, but as despising him. That's why the New Testament calls us to think about these incidents in Israel's history and apply it to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 11, you can read that in your own time. Paul says, these things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. And he refers specifically in among the things that Israel did to their grumbling and their complaining. God has been so kind to take their history and make it for us a warning. Signposts to watch our hearts against this this weed-like sin. Because this is is what happens. Grumbling and complaining is looking at a care, something we care about, some issue we're focused on, and it is deciding, as we've been saying in the series, like all of our emotions, it's deciding the future of that care. We're projecting whether or not it's going to go well or to go poorly. And we're looking at this care, in this case a command from God or whatever situation God has us in in life. We're looking at this thing and we're saying, this ain't how I would do it. God, you're not running my life right. Or this ain't how I would behave. God, your commands are burdensome. God, you know what? We need a change of management. And if we're not careful, we'll look at that care, we'll project that if we do it the way God does, wants us to do it, it's not going to go well. That, that grumbling and complaining has a close cousin. It grows up into bitterness and resentment and hardness of heart. So if we detect in ourselves a kind of spirit of grumbling and complaining, we need to trace that back to the root question, what do I think God is getting wrong in my life? Where God and I at cross purposes about how my life should be managed. And, and when we get there, we need to understand we're the ones who's wrong, not God. We're the ones who need to be adjusted. Because the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. His word is life. It is bread to us. And when we make that adjustment, then we want to commit ourselves to a happy, glad-hearted obedience, to doing all things without grumbling and complaining. Notice verses 15 to 16. They tell us the result of this kind of glad obedience to God. Glad obedience to God proves to the world that we are saved. That's the point of those four phrases that, that follow in verses 15 and 16. Notice how the text moves from proving your salvation to yourself to proving it to the world, this generation, this dark world. He says, do this, obey God with a glad heart, number one, that you may be blameless and innocent. Number two, really so that your identity will come through. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Why? So that you will shine like lights in the world. You'll be proving that you are the children of light. You are the children of God. You'll be shining in this dark world in a way that's compelling both for you and the world. Because it'll be proving to the world that you belong to Christ and proving to the world that there's a better way than darkness. 
holding fast or holding out the word of life, the gospel itself. When that's happening in our life, when obedience is at work in our life, it is proving to the world in these ways that we are children of God and we are light in the world. And it's shining a light to the path to Christ. Listen, beloved, we will never demonstrate the joy of salvation by living in disobedience to God. Every act of disobedience declares we think that joy is found elsewhere than in Christ. And every act of disobedience, rather than saying and communicating to the world that we have been saved by Christ, it ends up saying we are sure there's something better than Christ. And the world notices. So, a few application questions. Are you a grumbler and complainer? You notice this sin in your heart in any measure? Have you been thinking of this as a small sin with no consequence? That's what Israel thought. And most of them were buried in the wilderness. They didn't make it into the promised land. Take warning from Israel. Spend your afternoon reading the scenes of grumbling and complaining in the history of Israel and seeing how God responds and calling for a spirit of repentance and of fresh faith. What about your friendships? Are they marked by grumbling and questioning? Are your friendships typically the kind of friendships where you get together, you hang out, you talk, and sooner or later you're spiraling down, digging a deeper pit of murmuring and complaining? Or your marriages? Every once in a while, every once in a while, I come home complaining about something. I share with my wife, my best friend, my confidant, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Right? And every once in a while, I'll start complaining and mid-sentence, she'll take over. <laughs> or it's the other way around. She'll start, and I'll start piling on. And we've got this little rule. We've got to look at each other and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't pile on. Don't pile on. <laughs> you know, I'm affecting your heart. I need you to help me with my heart. Right? And, and we'll sort of stop and adjust each other and maybe pray, or, or we'll go to our separate corners and grumble. But we'll, we'll, we'll try to get it right. We'll try to get it right before the Lord. Do your friendships work that way? Or your friendships are sanctifying and people speak to you about what's coming out of your heart in the form of grumbling and complaining? Or to put it positively, do you obey God with gladness? Are you waiting to 515 or are you getting up early to start your day in joyful obedience to God your Father? We want to develop the psalmist's attitude in Psalm 119, how he, how he weeps to see the word of God trampled, but how he delights in the word that's sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Or better yet, we want to develop Jesus' attitude when he says that it, it is his bread to do the Father's will. That it's his life, it's his food to obey God. Christ is in us, and we want that modeled in our lives. Jerry Bridges wrote uh, a wonderful book called Respectable Sins, confronting the 
the sins we tolerate. And in it, he tells the story of getting a a greeting card uh, from a friend following the loss of his first wife. And in the greeting card was an anonymous poem, and part of the poem said this, Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, relinquish what you take. I think that's what, it's looked like to li- what it looks like to live without grumbling and complaining. We say to the Lord, I'm willing to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, and relinquish what you take. Because in that kind of prayer is a declaration that God is the best management of our lives. He's sovereign and he's good. And there's no need to complain because he's sovereign and he's good. And he will be good to those who trust him. And that's how we prove to the world that we are God's people, that we are saved. Finally, we want to prove it not only to ourselves and prove it to the world, we want to prove it to the church. We want to prove it to one another. In fact, we want our church family to be a kind of co-op, to be a kind of partnership where we are proving it with one another and helping to prove it with one another. That's what we see in verses 17 and 18. Paul says there, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial altar of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul uses there the imagery of the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, Israel worshiped God at a holy altar. And on that altar, they made various kinds of sacrifices to God in order to make atonement for their sins. Those sacrifices were symbolic. They were pointing forward to the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would be sacrificed on the the cross for the sins of the whole world. But Paul pulls that picture to mind, and he makes their faith an altar. And he sees himself as the offering. In this case, as a drink offering. And he sees himself being poured out. It's a picture or metaphor of his life being given for their faith, for their assurance, for their establishment in the things of Christ. And he says, if that happens... I'm glad, and I rejoice. And you go, Paul, why would you be happy to die for someone else's faith? Well, it's because of what we've been saying through this series, that that if we want a distinctively Christian joy, if we want a serious joy, then we have to attach our hearts and our emotions not to those cares which, which change in this world, but we have to attach our emotions to passions, to Christian passions, to those passions that are so central to the Christian life that we build our lives around them and they animate everything else in our lives because those passions are always going to go well. And for Paul and Philippians, there are three. There's the gospel, there's Jesus himself, and there's the day of Christ. And Paul says all of his joy rides on the going forth of the gospel, the exaltation of Christ, and the coming of the kingdom. 
And so when he thinks about the church and his ministry in the church, he's saying, listen, my whole goal here is to root you in Christ, to get you established in Christ so that you are full of confidence that Christ is Lord, that he has saved you, and you're not doubting that, but you're living out of the joy that comes from the recognition that you are saved. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, now listen, I will give myself for your faith that you be established in Christ. That's no sacrifice to me at all because that's my passion. That's, That's what I live for. That's what I long for, to see all the churches established in Jesus. And so Paul says, I rejoice. Here's a man when he writes these words is literally in prison for the gospel. These are not empty boasts. This is really how his soul is shaped. This is really what is most deeply important to him. Christ, the gospel, the kingdom, and the church being established in it. And then Paul invites them in verse 18 to join him in that joy. He says, listen, not only am I glad and and, and rejoice to give myself for you, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It ought to be for the happiness of a church to have Christian leaders who pour their lives out for the joy of the church. We should find churches not where we're happy when we show up, because that won't last. Pastor going to say something you didn't like. Somebody ain't going to speak to you. Somebody in your seat. Somebody kids beat you to the muffins. <laughs> Always going to be something, right? Because if, if your heart is attached to those cares, you know, your, your emotions will go up and down. So don't, don't join a church just because you was happy the first time you went there. Join a church with an active commitment to partner with everyone in the church for collective joy to press toward joy, to work for joy, and to root our joy in these passions of Christ, the gospel, and the kingdom. And can I tell you, if, if, we, if that's not our passion, and that's not where our joy comes from, we won't hold it together long, beloved. Amen. We won't hold it together long. There's, there's, no, there's no mistake that he began in verse 14 with do all things without grumbling and complaining. And he ends with joy. Because if you do anything grumbling and complaining, you are sapping your own joy and the joy of others. Grumbling and complaining is an enemy to joy. And the church is to be committed to joy, everyone's joy, together, sure of our salvation. And that's the partnership we're in here. The church should be a joy factory in that way. Not a light, slappy, happy, clappy joy that's not built on anything, but a deep, serious, rigorous, strong joy rooted in the gospel, rooted in Jesus, facing real life, and yet hoping for life beyond this one. So that's what Paul invites them to. And this is what the ministry is about. This is what your membership in the church is about. A good pastor follows Paul's example and works for the congregation's joy. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. One of my favorite texts, Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith. That's not Christian leadership, ruling you with an iron hand. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for what? Your joy. Why? For you stand firm in the faith. You see the connection with assurance there? 
We are working with you for your joy so you might stand fully assured, standing firm in the faith. That's what this whole church thing is about. There are other things, but, but there's this thing. And, and not only do good pastors work that way, but, but good congregations work that way too. Good congregations obey and follow their leaders without grumbling and complaining for their pastor's joy too. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. Let them do this, notice, with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know what the natural instinct is in a pastor when he has grumbling, complaining, prickly people? It's to pull back. Because the best pastors are just men. Don't you pull back from people that seem to be stabbing you with complaining and don't you do that? We ain't nothing but men. We pull back too. And then we groan. We pray for you. Groaning, Lord, help me to pray for Joe. I know he's yours, Lord, but you know, you watch him, you watch him. (laughs) And that's no advantage to you to have your pastors withdraw from you because of difficulty in, in, in your soul or your spirit expressed against their leadership. It wasn't a joy for Moses to have all of Israel, the whole nation, say, why you bring us out here in this desert? Bring us out here to die? Moses is a marvelous man. You notice what he did in Numbers 14? He fell on his face and interceded for them. It's the only reason Israel wasn't destroyed. God said, I'm going to start over. I'm going to make you a nation. Moses said, no, no, don't kill him. Don't kill him, Lord. Kill him. Now, what you want to pray for is for a pastor who will respond like Moses. Lord, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Right? We're having fun with this, right? But good congregations like you make shepherding a joy. And good pastors, like I pray that we are, make your Christian life a joy because we are working together to root each other in faith in Christ. And out of that assurance comes this joy. So we should close. We exist to work for each other's joy in Christ. We exist to work for each other's full assurance in faith. We will not be happiest until those passions are strongest. The more focused we are on these passions, the more intense will be our joy. The joy of full assurance in Christ becomes proof to the church, to each other, of our salvation in Christ. And so a couple application questions or suggestions. Number one, let us do something sacrificial to help someone else be sure of their salvation in Christ. How will your life be a drink offering on the sacrificial altar of someone else's faith? And number two, let us develop the habit, let us have a conspiracy really, of inviting each other to rejoice with one another that we are saved. In a moment, we're we're about to have the Lord's Supper. We should come to this table glad. I heard a preacher say this week, and it it struck me because it's true. He just said, listen, communion is not a funeral service for Jesus. Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. 
right? So we should come to this table glad and rejoicing that Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. And we who have faith in him are risen together with him. And so let us, let us create a conspiracy of encouraging each other to rejoice that our Savior lives and we live with him. Do you think we celebrate our salvation enough? Do you think that has something to do with how joyful we are in the Lord? Happy people talk about the things that make them happy. It's the nature of joy to promote itself. Are we marked by Christian joy? Because we have proven to ourselves and to the world and to each other that we belong to Jesus. That's our goal. In this series and in our Christian life is to be a family full of joy because we know Christ is risen and we have risen with him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to show and not merely tell. To prove to ourselves and to prove to a dark and watching world and to prove to one another that we belong to you. With a, a full obedience, a glad, cheerful obedience from the heart. Lord, with fear and trembling testing ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, holding fast to the word of life, to the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other, reminding one another of what Jesus has done for us in conquering our sins on the cross and rising from the grave for our justification and what he has promised to us, that he is coming again to gather us, to bring us into the Father's mansions. Lord, grant us that fruit of the Spirit called joy. Work it in us. It's you who are at work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. It's you who are producing fruit in our lives. Produce this fruit abundantly, we pray. That we would not be sour but celebratory. That we might not be murmuring but those who magnify your mercy that we would not be grudging but glad to take your yoke upon us and learn from you. For you are meek and lowly at heart and you give rest to our souls. At the end, Lord, let our assurance come from resting in Christ, in his finished work on our behalf, and let our souls be filled with joy. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the privilege this morning.